they noticed that only certain monkeys would like overdo it with the imbibing of alcohol. Mm. And this also applied to like rotting fruit on the beach. That's like where they learned to develop a taste for it, apparently. Got it. Okay. But so they're drunk monkeys. They're drunk monkeys, but only about 30% of the population would. So there was alcoholics, basically. There were alcoholics within their... And the funny thing is, that's... I don't know what the statistic is, but it was commensurate or at least analog- analogous to the human, human population that had struggles with alcoholism. Wow. So it was very much like... So a, this is like a really just a genetic... Some people just are... Yeah. They're people and animals. But I mean, the fact that like we share that trait is really fascinating actually it's however probably, the thought of like yeah. monkeys coming to finish people's drinks it's kind of darling like monkey spring break it's like slimer from ghostbusters you know just yeah, coming but, over to finish but i am sad for the monkeys that the who need a 12-step <laughs> yeah program. who develop a problem yeah. yeah oh my god those poor monkeys they're gonna keep going with their friends because you know yeah. peer pressure yeah you know? <laughs> yeah i think what you need and what we all need is a breath of fresh moving. Mm. You're listening to a breath of fresh movie. It's a weekly podcast where me, Victoria Harley, and just this week, maybe last week, maybe next week, we don't know. Mike, Sally Farber. We watch a movie neither one of us has ever seen before, and then we talk about it. And we may not talk about everything. We're not going to cover yeah. it all. But we will talk about anything. So You are allowed to pull your hair out being like, why won't they mention the best part? Yeah, I mean, we didn't. We forgot to talk about... Lawrence Fishburne last I was week. Go- Glover. No. Glover. Lover, Danny Glover. You just watched Mission oh Impossible. That's what I did. I watched the Lawrence Fishburne movie. Yeah. My bad. Ding, ding, ding. Spoilers, Spoilers a This week's film is the 1957 anti-war film, Paths of Glory, mm-hmm. directed by Stanley Kubrick. And I, I have to just get it out. Like, even though this is one of the mo- more accessible, like you could find it. I feel like it was at my library growing up. I feel like it was in a lot of video stores. And I feel like this is one of those ones that's actually shown or available in a lot of places. But um, this was one I I just had never actually seen. Yeah. And. Well, I certainly haven't. No, no, I really love Kubrick. And it. Oh, I guess I. No, I never actually sat down with this one. I definitely knew what it was about. I knew about Kirk Douglas. But um, I was a little hazy on some of these first films of his. So. Um, I'm really glad, you know, somebody messaged me uh, on the socials actually before we sat down tonight and they said something about how this is like the first Kubrick Kubrick movie. Mm. And I know exactly what they mean now. Okay. You know, because as much as I love The Killing, it it is a little different. You know, it's a great crime movie. I enjoy the hell out of it, but it feels like just a competent crime film as opposed to like the the sort of um, attention to detail and the, the... the control that I think Paths of Glory right. reflects like a, a Kubrick with more of a, a leash a leash artistically. Yeah, the the killing felt like kind of like the the blueprint for every heist movie now. I mean Tarantino credits it yeah. big time. But Paths of Glory feels yeah, you see much more of his personal Kubrick touch in this one. Definitely. Um so in case you're not familiar with it, 
This film is adapted from the novel by Humphrey Cobb, and it chronicles the unjust trial of three innocent soldiers accused of battlefield cowardice, basically to placate a general with huge pride mm-hmm. issues. Yeah, That's more or less what the film's about. Um, it can be called a war film, and by that I mean an anti-war film, because it certainly is that. Mm-hmm. But it's also a bit of a courtroom drama. Yeah. You know, so it, it has... It has a lot of different things going for it. Right. Um, so this is the spoiler-proof Sally moment. Yes, I will say Shotgun Spoiler Sally says, Sally says uh, the ending of this movie does kind of matter. So if you don't want to yeah. ruin this movie, you probably should watch it first. Yeah. Because the ending does, you know. There's a lot of tension around yeah. will they, it will builds, they. yeah. And that's not a romantic thing. There's basically one woman in this whole movie. So at this point forward, sail at your own risk. That's right. Damn the torpedoes. Here be monsters. Here be monsters. <laughs> I can picture our ship rolling into ding, ding, the ding, like ding. part the coordinates that turn into the yeah, the oh, big yeah. sea monsters and you know. <laughs> Are we just talking about Cabin Boy? Yes. Ch- Charky. Mm-hmm. Yes. Charky. Um okay. First impressions. Paths of Glory. Um, I mean, it is bleak. I liked it, and I was along for the ride because at first I was like thinking I was gonna get some war movie, but then it quickly turns and it's like, you know, wrenches you for I don't know that part that you wanted to see more of. But yeah, it was a. Uh, I thought it was good, and it didn't pull any punches. And yeah, I yeah, mean, certainly like for its time, it probably took some guts to make such a. Mm-hmm. And although United Artists eventually did put up the money for this, it was largely an independently developed. Mm. And, you know, they bought the rights to the book. They wrote the screenplay. They got the actor. Right. And then they got the money. I, so, yeah. Um, that's not my first impression. I mean, I you said something when we, because we watched it together. Yeah. And you said something at the end, like, oh, Kubrick always criticizes the right people. Right. <laughs> Depending on where you are in life, and I, by that I mean kind of like um, your age. You know, you could you could interpret this as a as a generational drama mm. of like because it very much is okay. World War One was like this bizarre set of circumstances where you had like this old empire, old colonial way of doing things, right. abutting up against technological developments, the likes of which no one had ever experienced in a battlefield. Right. People were coming home with wounds that no one had ever had before. Right. You know, prosthetics like developed that wasn't that, as I mean, a result of that yeah war, like yeah. restoring people's faces and the gas and the mm-hmm. you know um, machine guns it was the first fully mechanized war right but then you have this element of trench warfare and i know we're in history camp right now but i'm just bringing people up to speed that like it's it's just there were a lot of older generations using very old methods to try to run a war but using young people yeah. for fodder Right. So I think there's there's a tremendous like generational tension, but I think it's foolish to see this as only that because it, it's just generally war as hell. I mean that right. is like the the takeaway, and it the it all feels very stupid. It just feels stupid, which is how the First World War kind of makes you feel if you study it yeah. with any depth. It's just like, what the fuck was the, that about? The attrition war, basically. I where mean, trench men warfare. dying over yeah literal. Yeah. Didn't, like, the opening kind of talk yeah. about it? Yeah, oh, where, a bit, yeah. I mean, it's... Like, enti- opening text even said, like, where men were traded yeah. for miles and in the thousands. there was tremendous, whatever. like, pressure 
about the perception of the war and the press mm-hmm. and like there you know it was like PR for the f- was not the for the first time but I mean and trench warfare had been used in Crimea and I think maybe in the Civil War in America but it's you know there's a moment it's not even a big moment it's just a regular moment in this movie but there's a scene where you you see like a motorcycle kind of avoiding uh, a horse-drawn carriage and it's like the perfect visual right. of like what I'm trying to get at here which is like Kubrick did such a wonderful job of just the details are so accurately showing you everything like it's so much is shown to you and not said right. and like just thinking about those first scenes the tracking shots through the trenches I mean right. they're, they're magnificent but the number of times that somebody is is carried past the general while his back is turned who's like they've got bandages on their face and they're bleeding yeah. or somebody else is carrying huge artillery and it's right. just all going wars going on behind us right. and it just there's nothing um there's nothing heroic about it no it's a it is an inspired shot that opens in that trench and just oh my god dollies all the way down it it's it's uh it's delicious and i i definitely do sense what you're talking about with like uh, the criticism of World War One being like, you're right, like this nationalism at play that like, oh, if we just rattle our sabers hard enough, yeah. and men will be rallied. Mm-hmm. We can break the line. But, it, I mean, and it was it was a, a weird like nationalism is like this weird, mm-hmm. not racism, but this weird no, belief that of, like though. we are exceptional breed of men and we will conquer the Huns or the whomever mm-hmm. because because we believe in our country, you know. Oh yeah, no, you've like. And that. then smacked against the brutal reality of like yeah. physics and death and whatever, oh, and, you can't breathe. And gas. like at yeah. the beginning of this war, you know, you've got lots of imperial figures. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the Archduke is his assassination kicks the whole thing off, right? Yeah. But you know, Russia goes from having a czar to turning into a like Soviet, you know, communist nation. There's tremendous change that goes on across the world right. during this four years. And then there's the influenza epidemic that comes right. after it. There's, uh, you know, prohibition. There's, you know, women getting the right to vote because, like, hey, turns out when we were yeah. filling in for people. I mean, not that in the United States, it wasn't like the Second World War. I don't think, you know, we sent plenty of people over, but it wasn't like the sacrifice that right. Euro- Europeans made. I mean, Europe in general lost an entire generation of of young men and anyway it's it's a fascinating time but sure. it's a really painful example of people like not just reading a room or yeah. or not learning from mistakes it's right. it's a lot about pride and um and perception over truth and that's kind of like what the main character you know, he, he's trying to force the question by the end of like, do yeah. you actually believe what you're saying? Yeah. And it's so clear that nobody does. Nobody believes mm-hmm. the bullshit they're saying. It's just that like, but that's how it is. You're right. <laughs> anyway. I think Kirk plays, I think it's funny how he plays like such a like a broad, like American hero in this French movie. Mm-hmm. And some people, some of the critics, I think, found it odd that they were in like English accents or American straight accents. American accents with no like French affectation. I mean, it stood but out. I didn't hate it, it. No, it stood out to me as like, I was like, no, I I don't need them to pretend. I mean, can you imagine Kirk Douglas yeah. doing a French accent? No, 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 no don't no. do that. Also, it just doesn't matter. It's like reading a book translated into English. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I, I just, 
people will get it from the costumes and right. and I I loved that because I always hate when movies do that. I hate when it's like I mean like one well, today just I don't one think ex- you could get away with it but uh, at the time, House of Gucci. Oh okay, never mind. Everybody's like uh we're going to talk like this the yeah, whole time yeah. but we never actually going to speak Italian. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean that's the whole fucking movie. That's I mean, even if that is how certain people talked. No, it, in it's not. It's not about the accent. I love an Italian accent speaking sure. English. I love that, but an authentic one. What right. this feels like is a poor, poor it's, character. We used to do that more, but I just feel like no, it's silly. Don't do that. Chef Boyardee. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, a lot of war movies do that. You know, because it's like, well, how are we gonna know? It's like we'll yeah. figure it out. I guess I'm thinking about Gladiator, and it's not like they really tried for realism there. They just no. they make the. We also have no recordings of ancient Romans. So it's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I'm just saying, you know, I mean, th- that helps. Right. Although, have you ever heard, this is totally a digression, but like that when people were making pots on wheels, that they kind of became like, they're actually somewhat like phonographic. Because the motion, like it picked up enough vibration oh. that they think they might be able to actually, like, if they could figure out a stylus to to render it, uh. like you might be able to hear people talking or something, like as they're potting. Oh, oh, weird. Yeah. Oh, now I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Pottery sorry. wheel. Pottery, pottering. Yeah. Anyway, that that's a huge digression. Anyway, um, silent imagery is great. The whole honor is just a dick measuring contest thing comes off really quick i also feel like this reminds me of just like the i understand why this was banned well i mean i think it's silly that it was banned in france because this isn't a critique of france this is a critique of humanity and war in general so it doesn't matter but i kind of felt like he just found the perfect like well one of the things says he just found the perfect story to kind of tell a war vehicle he wanted to do Mm -hmm. but for some reason, I don't know, I kept getting the feeling that, like, I don't think this is about World War One. It's like, about every war. Yeah. And you know? I kind of felt like, well, World War Two had just, you know, was much more recent in everyone's mind. But I feel like he, he I don't know, he wanted to go further away because mm-hmm. he didn't want it to be, like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it, it definitely feels, um, you know, it, after we finish it, it's like, I did not see 1917. I see. You know? And to be honest, after seeing this, I'm like, I'm good. I don't think I need it. <laughs> like, no. I mean, maybe not. that's a shitty thing to say. I think 1917, it's hard for me. I would have to re- watch it again. Mm-hmm. I think it. So you it, have seen it. I have seen 1917. Um, it owes a lot to the whole, not the gimmick, but the, <laughs> it owes a lot to the idea of like, we're not going to, we're going to do one long shot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And whether that will, I think. Time will tell whether that is cheesy or, you know, it worked and y'all did it. Yeah. The one long shot thing is, you know, I don't want to like poo-poo it because, I mean, uh, Hitchcock did it, you know, for Mm -hmm. Rope. And it's there's still all these kind of awkward, like, oh, you got to go on to the guy's suit back. You know, and it just, it's like, it does, even though I love Rope, it still feels very, like a bit of a gimmick. And wasn't Birdman also like one long shot? It was a lot of it was a lot of it was. I mean, respect. I, I a long shot. Well, maybe is, you're right. Maybe it, that was the thing. A long shot remember. is like really impressive and cool, but I'm I'm starting to get like unimpressed with like technical prowess. Right. I, I'm right. like I, I need it to serve the story. Yeah. Like you know. 
I think I think uh, Kubrick here. I don't think he like to bring it back. No, please do. I don't think he colors outside the lines. I think it's everything no. is useful and and you're right. Does not include a weird stitch just to, for stitches' sake. Yeah, of like, yeah. There's nothing. Um, there's it's it's incredibly like restrained and and precise. Yeah. Um, and you know he still wasn't like a big big deal yet, so he had to get it right. Right. Quickly and well and under and on budget and on schedule. This is this is a working Kubrick. This isn't the maniacal, yeah, you know, yeah. I can do whatever I want and no. take as long as I want. No, this is a very different time. And some people feel that these early films are some of his best because of their... He hadn't gotten indulgent. <laughs> well, I love his indulgence. Sure. Um, but he, he was highly competent. And, you know, people talk about Orson Welles being a prodigy and certainly mm-hmm. he, he qualifies, but... Um, I think like Kubrick, and we'll talk a bit more about his his life growing up. But um, I think I, I think he's actually kind of like he's like Wells. He like inherited. It's like Wells should have yeah. had the career Kubrick had. Yeah, but he probably. didn't. You know, yeah, I and, agree. And I think like it. That's always been thought of like kind of like everybody had a better career after Citizen Kane except Orson Welles. Yeah, it's like yeah. the joke. Um, so I don't know. There's something about Kubrick that's like you're, you're just delighted that somebody noticed noticed, and that that this guy cared enough to to put this much effort in it because he understood that you only get one shot at making something. Right. And that like you have to get it right. I think I agree. You've kind of slowly made me a Kubrick fan and I've avoided them avoided his movies mainly uh-huh. because I knew I could never like out nerd the other film nerds yeah, because I was about, behind. No. And no, it's not. I, I really have grown to appreciate his like slow attention mm-hmm. to detail and everything he makes. And yeah. I mean, even the reviews of this film, mm-hmm. a lot of them seem to recognize this young man is very talented, you know? Yeah. He was 28 when he made this. And it, you want to yeah. take a drink after you hear that. Cause yeah. you're like, Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. Yeah. Even Jesus was older. Yeah. He um, wasn't even in his Jesus year yet. Yeah, no. <laughs> but yeah, I think he, everybody can kind of see that he was, he was talented at even a young age. And I think Orson Welles probably is the most apt comparison I can think now. Yeah, of I course, think it's, it's what been, do I know? I'm but. sure it's been, it has to have been made by other people, which I probably read and I'm now probably, you know, paraphrasing. But um, here's, here's what could have been maybe, you know, or this is an example of somebody who, um, had like the high competence and the confidence, right? Yeah. And to be open enough to, because people think of Kubrick as being this really cold right. and like c- controlling guy. And it's like, well, controlling in the sense that a director should care about every element. Right. And he cared about all the details. But that didn't mean he wasn't collaborative. Right. He, he would hand a camera to somebody like for a battle scene or something and say, hey, like, go shoot me some footage, you know? So he's not. You know, I think that's just a total misconception. It's easy to just like, yeah, kind of paint him as, yeah, almost a character. You know, like Kubrick as the guy who yelled at what's her name on the shiny. Yeah, I mean, I don't love the way he treated her, and I'm not gonna, but I, I still, I have a lot of respect for, um, his story, his films, everything that he's done. I think he just is remarkable. I mean, he really change not just filmmaking but like our consciousness mm-hmm. which i mean you can't ask for a better as an artist really no. so i um, just mad respect i, I love <laughs> it yeah all all that all of that, <laughs> all that. <laughs> i i really do love his like attention to detail mm-hmm. and 
I don't know if it's just like in a nerdy way or how his cinema is so visual. Yes. And even again, some people say it's kind of heavy handed, but it's Mm-mm. still. I don't think so. It's still um, clear. It's like, have you seen a Baz Luhrmann film? <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, heavy handed. Right, right. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Um, this is not. No, Kubrick is not heavy handed. Well, what I mean, mm. he's he's clear. He's definitely direct. Yeah. And Sober. Not, not obvious, but what's the word I'm looking for? He's uh, something. His intent is very clear. And like, yeah, it feels blunt at times, except mm-hmm. he takes the time and the space to let it breathe. So it isn't, what, cheesy or, che- you know, it's mm-hmm. not MTV editing. He's not like, yeah. it's not even like well, stylized, the, like John Woo, for instance. Well, and yeah, I mean, like there's lots watched. of different ways to make a film and cut a film. But I, I agree there's something about... Um, there's something about like, no, we have it. Like, this is yeah. the shot I want. I don't need coverage or whatever the fuck you want to call it. I, you know, this is the thing. I think he's just somebody who really cared about the details and you you damn well should. He also is a big believer in that like, if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. And if yeah. you take your eye off something, that's when shit goes, comes off the rails. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I think they were just like... I think this movie was full of of dread and like frustration, you know, and anger and mm-hmm. and this kind of like the projection like everybody who's calling these men cowards, it's like you're yeah. doing this from this beautiful palace of a of a headquarters right. while those other men are living in shit. Yeah. I mean precisely. Contrast. I... It's incredible. Also Timothy Carey is fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. And he's in this. He but he's magnetic. You can't take it, your eyes off him. <laughs> he really, really can't. Fucking crazy, though. And we'll talk more about yeah, yeah. Timothy oh, well, Carey. <laughs> yeah, I, got, I got a story. We for sure will. I was just going to. Well, what was it I was going to say about Kubrick? Oh, I'm sorry. Dread, projection, Dread, projection cowardice. Cowardice. Uh, there was some remarks some character made about, like, he, debating between, like, you know, they're about to. They're going to go over the wall the next day, you know, for the anthill. And he, he sort of, in a really neurotic way, you know, going like, am I afraid of death or am I afraid of pain? Oh, like, right, right. And, you know, there's all these people having these kind of, even before any of this court martial shit happens, it's just the dread of yeah. we've been given this impossible mission and a lot of people are going to die and we all know it. But when that whistle blows, we have to just sort of run out there and do it. Yeah. And, and it's like it's asking people to commit suicide. And it's right. it's so disturbing just to begin that way. Yeah. And then we get into this. Yeah. I remember I was going to say about Please. Kubrick. He gets really good performances out of his actors. Maybe that's where his uh, controlling thing comes from. But he doesn't he gets the perfect take out of them so much. Uh, it's. Yeah. Without, you know, without dialogue to explain, mm-hmm. there's a lot of subtext in just how like a underling officer has to react to this other character's. Yeah. Kind of. Need to communicate this tension. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think to affect in this movie, it kind of starts out where you don't realize who's full of shit yet. Right. Yet. Yeah. Because it kind of the it, the order to invade gets passed down the chain of command. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that whole scene too, where yeah. it's like the guy's like, uh, no, that's impossible. And they're like, Yeah, but um 
you'll get another star yeah like, if you can do it and then he asks him like well what about artillery support because like yeah. you can't do any of this without artillery and he's like well we'll see about it and yeah. it's like <laughs> as soon as he said that i'm like there's not going to be any support and yeah. sure enough a few scenes later no artillery support yeah and it's like god this shit is so you don't have to be in the military to experience that. Like yeah. you work any job where you got some bullshit. Yeah. I'm just saying like mm -hmm. it, it's, it's infuriating. And then, yeah, the shit just rolls downhill. That's exactly what I wrote down in my, is that you, that the beginning of this movie is you watch this lump of shit roll down to Colonel, Colonel, yeah. uh, what's his name again? Uh, Dax. Yes. You watch Kirk Douglas basically catch this steaming. Yeah. And I'm, I was, I was like, as a, just a viewer who wasn't sure exactly the order of operations, I was relieved that uh, Colonel Dax wasn't one of the people on trial. That he was, yeah, in private life, an attorney, and and felt sympathetic oh. and. Well, that it, that's a detail you might have missed. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. It, when he's not, when he wasn't in the military, he was an attorney. I gotcha. So that's why you know he can be in the courtroom and confidently ask, like, "Well, are you going to read the indictment? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. surely they should know what they've been accused of." Like he understood what a normal um, mm -hmm. due process should look like. But of course, that's impossible to get in a court martial, but, at least in this court martial. But like I said, the the general it starts off with like the, they're praising the general for his command and the bravery of his men, and he even echoes that too. So you kind of think like, yeah, oh maybe he is kind of a well, even guy. But then it's more and more like revealed that oh he's well he's like well I shouldn't be throwing them into the meat grinder like that. Yeah. But then, like, he gets cajoled into it. Yeah. And then, like, his underling gets, gets cajoled, cajoled yeah. into it. Although I do think the scene where the colonel is receiving the order from the general, there is just, like, there's so many great lines in that scene, yeah. like, about, like, you can't just wave a flag in front of us like we're a bull, you know? Yeah. And he's like, you think the flag, flag of France, you know, could be usable, but, or something about like you would disrespect it. And he's like, yeah. I mean, I think that's actually the only appropriate thing to do with our flag. And, you know, the whole Samuel Johnson thing about patriotism is the refuge of last refuge of the scoundrel. And, oh, you right, know, right. And there's so many. And then, you know, even things about there's a major who's like a little, you know, lamprey on the general, mm -hmm. you know, who's gets sent out at one point of a, of the room and you think, oh, okay, well, there is some sense that like, okay, that guy's a toady. Um, but it, there's this whole, you know, talking about like, oh, they're, they're all scared and crowding together. It's kind of like a herd mentality mm -hmm. thing. And Dax is like, kind of seems like a human thing. Yeah, or don't yeah. you distinguish? Yeah. You know, they it, were blaming the men yes. for being clumped together. So when the artillery hit, they all got, they're like, so the only yeah the only answer they had for like how do you protect men is like well they shouldn't be hurting together scared yeah, you know they should right. be spread out yeah that way artillery can't take out oh and, and men, the, the very know. clear like uh you know he meets that guy on the battlefield uh between you know campaigns or whatever but he's like at first you're kind of like amused but then you realize oh this guy's fucked up from you know, what they're like, sorry, sir, he's, you know, shell shocked. Yeah. And he's like, there's no such thing as right. that. And it's like, okay, so we know exactly where this guy stands. And it means just, it's just like, you know, mental health days and stuff. Yeah. Although, although I will say, I think at this point, the language of mental health has been fully co-opted right. by capitalism and by <laughs> yeah. our, but like, here's a, a, a webinar about, sure. about mental health. All right. You're all better. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, now go back to your jobs. We got to 
ad for BetterHelp coming up. I mean, after this. I'm just saying the number of times I hear an ad like that, and it's yeah. like it's hard. You know, it's easy to get burned out. It's hard to you know how to ba- learn how to balance it all. It's like yeah. the problem is not burnout. The problem is capitalism. Right. You're not broken. Everything else is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. BetterHelp.com. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's we'll my see, ad. We'll see if we can, uh, yeah, get some. I'm just saying. Get some money for that. Now. I'm not the one who's. That said, though, I no. am medicated. Um, yes. Okay. I also just wrote down the in war, everybody's a captive, and I think I wrote that down in response to watching the girls singing for the the soldiers. Right, right, because at right. first, I'm like, oh god, this is awful. They're bringing this th- oh. poor girl out to what appeared to be a room of just horny French soldiers yeah the fact that the french is irrelevant horny soldiers i loved that scene actually and they turn yes right no that scene is remarkable and and a much needed breath of purity after Mm -hmm. just a show of shit 1917 kind of copied that there is like a weird singing scene but it's you know yeah this haunting melodic scene in the middle of all that it's just this this girl singing i don't say plainly but just just there's nothing uh, it's not bad, but there's nothing special about it except that it is it is so. Well, it's, um, she's a German POW who like has to. Sing she's being sing forced for to sing, and yeah. again, that's what I mean. Everybody's a captive. Like they understand, we have been forced to to fight. She's being forced, you know, and the, they actually empathized with her, and her singing like got everybody in the room right. emotionally back to a place of like, I am a human being. And I'm not just a pe- a, a, right. a, pe- a member of a herd, I, you know, and, and this girl is is not just right someone we should, you know, I mean, I, I was so relieved. That was such the, like, yeah, huge thematic moment for this movie. And, like, a good example of, like, Kubrick really being kind of blunt. He literally took every soldier, gave him a close-up shot of Be- them whistling at her and yeah. taunting her. And it, it was, you know, what, 20, 30 oh, a, different yeah. faces and you that, saw? But that feeling was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like getting to have a moment with all of them and then how some were more uh, outlandish yeah. than others. But I think just as a woman watching it, I'm like, you know, and not that um, nobody else could understand this, but we're getting her perspective, yeah. you know, and I think that's like. You're, For sure. I, I'm sitting there imagining them imagining doing things to her. Oh, sure. You know? Sure. And they're yeah. licking their lips and they're, you know, and it's it's just like. It feels like the scene you've seen before and it starts out like that. And I was then, so scared for Then her. with each close-up, it gets more and more kind of like, not grotesque, but like a little more like kooky or even like crazy or even like a little more animalistic. Mm-hmm. And then like. It turns. And then the scene just flips and she. The song starts to affect them. Yeah. And then you see each of those 30 faces again. Like with tears. And, yeah, with yeah. tears. And then back to her. I, I thought that scene was so great. Honestly. No, it is. It is a good scene. And, and such an example of kind of what I've been talking about Kubrick all along. He lets things breathe. He gets like great performances. He There was like no words other than the German song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess French some jeers. Yeah, I mean, maybe or, some improvising. There's no real like anything but like so much was conveyed just mm-hmm. i mean yeah by seeing people cry but like you know yeah but such a beautiful scene i think it's like it's one of those things that when you're watching it it's like it's very difficult not to feel like you're there yeah like it, it especially because you've again you've you've been 
And you, it's not you, really you drag through a bleak sure and black and white movie. I mean, which like yeah. I love a black and white movie, but it, it helps convey the you the know lack of, the yeah. the bleakness. Like you were I, saying that, like I, as we were watching it, what would color do for a lot of these trench scenes? There's like it's yeah. all mud and smoke. I mean, I guess I just felt like black and white kind of gave it, and you know, you can blame this on like perception or too much weed or whatever but sometimes if you watch a black and white movie it's like you can almost sort of fill it in for yourself yeah and i don't mean i'm consciously doing that i just mean every once in a while you get so absorbed into it and your eyes are maybe locked in in such a way that you almost feel like you could see any color there and and the contrast of black and white films i mean it's just it cinematography is completely different and Mm -hmm. it, it just the way that people are lit, the way their faces, especially in the trenches, yeah. and, you know, it, it's like at night, I'm thinking about when they're in their like barracks, yeah. you know, there's a lot of really stark, it, sure. it almost has a noir quality yeah, at yeah. times, you know, um, it's, it's, you know, people who are weak willed and, you know, scheming and who cause people to die and yeah. people who may regret those choices, but they made them anyway. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's a movie just full of, it, it's excellent. I mean, I, I, Maybe I avoided it because I think, you know, on some level I might have just been like, oh, God, I don't know if I can deal with a depressing movie. But um, from like the look of it, it feels to me not much different from like a John Wayne war movie. But yeah. of course, it's completely different than that. It from like the Kirk Douglas cover, you would think it's just like Patton yes, or something. Yeah, but it, totally. I mean, that's the thing. I think I remember that DVD cover and just like, yeah. you know, again, the, the, it's like, oh, this is Kubrick. It's like when if you're not a huge Kubrick fan and it's like when you learn that, oh, he did yeah. Spartacus. Like, yeah. what? you know, um, anyway. I think I remember mm-hmm. in film school some like photocopied sheet. Mm-hmm. I think it's the picture of him holding the pistol and the way that he's pointed yes. up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's like a photocopied sheet from a book of a black and white still from a film. Uh, so, so it's, it's just, just kind of like yeah. the ba- faintest outline of Kirk Douglas I on mean, white paper. Yeah, know? I mean, it films a visual medium. It, it's tough. No textbook is going to really be able to do no, it. No. I mean, the number of times I'll read about something and they're talking about a film. And if I haven't seen it, I'm like, I should almost just put this book down. Yeah. Go watch the movie and yeah. then start It'll reading it It'll save you again. a lot of brain power, like trying to like interpret it. Yeah. I mean, honestly. Yeah. Um, so, and there are times when I've read about a movie several times and then I finally see it and I feel like really informed. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. There so. is a Roger Rabbit in this film. Yeah. I had heard things about it. It's a noir. Um, any other sort of first top notes, you know? Oh. Um, before we... I feel like this movie, It's first it's that war in the trenches. Great, you know, tracking Battle scenes, scene, whatever. Yeah. And then the second half is just the trial mm-hmm. in a completely different setting. And I feel like that's where Kubrick really like spread his wings and kind of showed you his, uh, well, even like his kind of his homage to Orwell, Orwell's and that like those big mm. sprawling halls that oh, he loves yeah. to film. Oh, yeah, it does feel kind of Citizen Kane. Endless deep depth of field and stuff. And yeah. the checkerboard floors, I was like, oh, oh yeah, they're playing chess. You know, Kubrick loves chess. Well, I so knew it must have been something. That's interesting. I did not notice that. Very good. <laughs> Very good. Mm-hmm. Have a treat. Um, I'm going to share some notes about the production because I can't, I can't sit on it anymore. Okay. So as I said, this was based on a novel by Humphrey Cobb, 
uh, which was based on a true story. This was also developed into a Broadway play of the same name uh, in 1936, but I want to stress that the screenplay is an original adaptation of that book. They did not borrow from the stage play at all. (laughs) Paths of glory, paths of death. It's not a a Broadway play. I don't say Broadway musical. Too late. I'm already... You know, they'll turn anything into a musical, so go for it. Private Pharaoh, what are you doing? <laughs> Get a Timothy Carey. I guess I'm just not good enough. They say I'm a degenerate. They say I'm a degenerate. Um, okay. That's my Timothy yes. Carey now, impression. Thank you. Um, the title of, you know, Paths of Glory is, ta- is a line from a Thomas Gray poem, Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard, which is totally a thing if you took English in college, mm. probably had to read. And the line specifically is, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. Hmm. Okay, well. Not, not going to read the whole poem. That kind of spoils the movie. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah. Everything kind of leads but to the grave. Well, that's true. I mean, let's get real. Let's find one thing that does not lead to the grave and people will beat a Well, I feel like that's Christianity's like promise, yeah. right? You'll yeah. live forever after you die. That's why it's <laughs> that's why it's such a good sell, I think, you know. It yeah. does have a promise, a hook. Sell, you mean a grift? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Paramount initially held the film rights to this, um, but they wanted to change it from the French army to Tsarist Russia. You know, they never had to like argue it away because the rights got purchased by Kubrick and James B. Harris later and you know then they went and did what they wanted with it but I'm thinking about that logic oh well we'll do it but we'll make you know it needs to be it can't be like a republic where this happens it needs to be in a czarist Russia where Mm. you know people are monsters Mm -hmm. and you know people like the thought of being shot for the countries yeah. you know or whatever would be more acceptable but it's like no this shit goes down democratic countries do yeah. just as much damage as dictatorships especially because it actually happened and it's like yeah it did it, actually happen that's the other thing so it's like <laughs> this not, isn't yeah this isn't editorializing it's quite li- like the french government literally paid a reparation to the three widows mm. because they recognized after the fact that this was yeah. Wrong. So as I said, Kubrick and his producing partner, James B. Harris, who he helped produce The Killing. Um, and I saw a really great interview, about 20 minutes long on YouTube with him talking about this film. And he sort of said that he essentially started working with Stanley because Stanley needed someone to help, as he put it, run interference from him and just kind of, yeah. you know, like, I don't want to worry about where the money's coming from or <laughs> the production problems. Basically, he, he gave Stanley the space to just worry about the film. Why does this feel like the most solid, like Kubrick yeah. Kubrick film? I feel like yeah, credit, leash. he had the help. And it's funny, you know, okay, we support the strike. <laughs> but I, there's something about the relationship between Harris and Kubrick. There's something really beautiful about a producer who wants to protect the artist. Right. And who wants to make it possible for the person to, to do well. And, and it's not like an adversarial thing. It's a really collaborative joint thing. And it, it's just such a different attitude, you know? That really does feel like, how do you put it? Just like, yeah, the greatest thing any artist could want is someone who understands the vision. Yes. And is willing to go do all the BS yeah. for it. Yeah. And I guess they had a really, you know, a very sensible agreement where they said, we're, we're never going to disagree on anything. And what they meant by that was, if we disagreed about something, we will have a discussion 
present arguments, mm-hmm. you know, and we feel like we should be able to convince the other person. Yeah. You know, and that way we don't want any split between us. We want right. to be aligned on shit, you That's, know. Sounds good. <laughs> right. And, you know, Harris admitted that often if there are disagreements, that Stanley often was more convincing, you know, mm. or he and he said that he would always argue, though, from the point of view of like, eh, it's not going to make sense, though, if it's that. He wouldn't argue from like emotion. He would argue yeah. very reasonably mm. about these artistic things. Yeah. And he could get really great performances out of people for the same kind of reasons, you know, because he was just he had that he knew what he wanted. He was yeah. very specific. And if somebody couldn't deliver and they failed him, yes, they they would be fired. And <laughs> Timothy Carey was fired off this movie, and we'll oh. talk about why. Mm. Um, but I, I don't want to get to that just yet. Um, so they adapted it, like I said, from the novel. Uh, they brought in Jim Thompson, who helped write The Killing. Uh, he did some work on it. It got passed over to another writer, Calder Willingham, and then Stanley Kubrick. So there are three writers credited on the screenplay for this. Um, there are some accounts out there that say like a lot of other actors were considered that Gregory Peck was the first choice. <laughs> I don't think that's true because I Harris himself was like, no, Kirk Douglas was always the first choice. Hmm. But then he was committed and Kirk wanted to do it because he thought the script was really great. Um, but he committed to a play or something. And so it was like, oh, I'm not available. And they're like, a Shit. Broadway play. Yeah. So what are we going to do? Yeah. The, of Paths of Glory. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the play fell through for whatever reason. The thing all disintegrated and Kirk was back on. And so then, mm. okay, now we got our shit. They have the script. They bring it to United Artists. They've got Kirk attached. You know, it's like, now it's like, oh, okay, we'll go ahead and fund this now. You know, Now that you've done all the work. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we'll give you the money. Well. Hey, I whatever. If you're going to put a nice little bow on it. Okay. Well, that's a real nice gift. So it we was. We got Dougie. Yeah, and the original script actually, uh, or I don't know. Okay, there's a lot of different different stories about this. I'm not sure exactly where the truth lies, but there was another version of the script at some point where um, an intervention happens and these men survive. They're not shot uh, by the firing mm-hmm. squad. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at some point in the making of it, you know, there was kind of like that's not going to work. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Like we have to do it this way. And uh, which is actually how the novel goes, too. It's not, you know, that's Mm. um, but there's some like I saw some things online that were like Kubrick wanted a happy ending. But Kirk Douglas was like, absolutely not. Go back (laughs) to the old ending. And like, I just didn't buy any of that, even though I'm sure it was highly collaborative. Like behind the scenes Hollywood stuff. Do you actually have to have any truth at all? No, you just say (laughs) allegedly. Yeah, alleged. Alleged. Just nice little anecdotes. That's all. It's been said. Whispers. I have heard. I've heard it said. You know what I heard. You know what I heard. Uh, the, the Rock, it was going to be the Crab King until he changed it to the Scorpion King. Uh, Just go with. But that. he could have done like a tie-in with like Joe's Crab Shack or something. <laughs> Joe's Scorpion. They could have gotten little like Scorpion King mallets and you know. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, um, yeah, I'm a marketing genius. All right, so I just made that up. I, want, yeah, I wanted no, no. to clear that. Thank I you, made, thank you. Okay. This was filmed in Munich, uh, partly at the Picaria Filmkunst Studios mm. and Geiselgestag Studios and the Schleichenheim Castle. <laughs> Schlittermann. Schleis, Schleisheim Castle. God, I, I that's bad. Kirk Douglas was involved as a producer, so he may have had opinions about things that I just um, couldn't confirm. I'm picturing him arguing for those opinions. He's yeah. Like, God damn it, Stanley, you got to do it right. Yeah. These men deserve a good picture. You can't just have them all tired and bedraggled all day. 
That's exactly what happened. Yep. So okay. his production company, Burna Productions, they were like, okay, Kirk will do it, but you have to sign you have to sign this contract that basically says that you will direct like <laughs> the next I think five films for his production company, which they were like, Oh my god, that could tie us up for years. But okay, whatever, fine, you know, we'll do it. And then the next two would have Kirk Douglas. Now eventually they ended up getting out of that. Okay, you know, fair, but yeah. it's why it's kind it's one of many reasons why Kubrick directed Spartacus. Uh-huh. Because it, it you know, it was You scratch my back, I'll scratch a yours. A bit, yeah. yeah. Um Scratch my back, Stanley. <laughs> yeah, I'll scratch yeah. I'll scratch your back. Oh, yeah, I can't yeah. do a good Kirk Douglas. It's too, yeah, people are better at it. Um, I wanted to mention also that during the production of this, um, again, the producer James Harris was talking about how Kubrick was really lovely to work with, you know, this, this reputation mm-hmm. for being cold and, and whatnot. He's like, it's not really true. You know, he was very collaborative, very open to things. And he said there was no pride of authorship, you know. <laughs> Everybody, um, but some directors would be concerned about appearing like they don't know what they're doing or they're not yeah, in charge, yeah, yeah. you know, like that is a big thing. And, um, and you know, he would allow Harris to pull a chair right up next to him when he was directing. Again, many directors do not want the producer on set yeah, yeah. or right there beside them. So, again, they had a very good relationship. Yeah, it seems like that's like the orbit of which this film worked. Is just, it really is, yeah. And films are, each one's like different. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a whole the ecosystem. The meta film of like, mm-hmm. yeah. Every production is different. Um, and one thing Harris learned from Kubrick was basically he Kubrick always carried a little notepad. And he, he sort of encouraged Harris to also do that because he told him, he's like, nobody can remember everything. Right, right. Um, and Harris said, like, you know, so sometimes, you know, somebody from maybe from like the film lab or something would be walking by. And if he saw like Kubrick going for his notebook, he knew, oh shit, like he's about to talk to me about something, <laughs> you know, because it's like, oh wait, wait. But again, he cared about every detail. He didn't want to let anything go. Hmm. He didn't want to let anything lapse. And I got to tell you, when you work on a, a production and there's many different moving parts, it can be really easy to drop a plate. You know, it's for it's, sure. it's so easy to like, oh fuck, we forgot about music. Oh fuck, yeah, we yeah. forgot. You know, and these things all have their a life cycle of their own and you you need to have an opinion about all of it you know if you right. don't it's kind of like why are you here you know i mean that's being a director i you know and it's he is a consummate director yeah because he cares about all this stuff i like i say you've made me a big fan of his and thank you it it's almost humbling to like it's kind of like i don't know watching you know jordan or something it's like watching mm-hmm. an athlete in his prime mm-hmm and like, what else was Stanley Kubrick going to do with his life except oh, yeah. you know, devote to this kind of no, thing? No, he like, he he found he found his his calling. Who else? Know? I mean, not to like say like he's unmatched, but like who else could you argue would do it better and more passionately than the way he did? I, I mean, don't know. it's hard to say. I he he has definitely the passion though. Um, I just want to close all this out by mentioning that. This opened on Christmas Day, 1957. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One of the bold, re- yeah, bold. <laughs> oh, I didn't bring up the Tim Carrey story. Take your family to my movie. So let me quickly just get this Tim Carrey thing out, which is okay. This is probably the most interesting part of the production, which is. Tim Carey, who plays one of the soldiers who is being accused of cowardice and is For scheduled to die. Those who don't know, he's basically Nick Cage meets 
Gary Busey. He's got a little John Lurie. Yeah, John Lurie meets Nick Cage meets Gary Busey. He's got a little... In temperament is the Busey. He talks with his teeth like this. Yeah. Yeah, like... Maybe maybe a tiny bit of John Turturro, too. Oh, yeah. He's got a lot of Turturro, It's it's like... Anyways, this Brooklyn actor who was starting to get some uh, notoriety at this time. He'd done a film called, I think, Bayou that was getting some attention. He was in The Killing. He's excellent. Mm-hmm. He's like menacing, even though he holding, he's holding a little puppy in his arms. He's still terrifying as all fuck. Um, however, uh, Tim Carey, during, he, in general, was kind of just difficult, though. You know, he's great on screen. There's no question. He is very magnetic. He, he He's great. He's a great actor. But every, I marched to the beat of a different drum. But like every moment leading up to that is a pain in the ass. <laughs> and Harris, the, the producer, was even like would have to spend a lot of time between takes just keeping him sort of occupied or like working on, on marching and walking and standing like a soldier. You got to put he, blinders on this guy. Yeah. Sure. He's, and I, I know what that's like. When, mm-hmm. If you've ever been a PA and there's somebody who's just like, you know, oh, I we feel have to like, handle them. You know, you like went to high school with this kid. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> He's like a class clown. Yeah. But he doesn't. Yeah. And so anyway, it's like 5 a.m. some day during the production and Harris gets a call from the police. They picked up Timothy Carey, who they had found bound hand and foot, like on the side of a road somewhere. And he was claiming that he had been kidnapped. <laughs> And that there was a ransom or, or all that. Anyway, the, the, they're calling. And this is in Munich, by the way. So this is the German police, wow. you know. And not like in the secret scary way. Just they're just there's a language barrier here. Just imagine like some mild-mannered German cops like, oh, could you just, we just need you to sign the statement. You yeah. know? And he's just like, that was more Irish than anything. But um, You don't know me. Well, he wouldn't, he, like he kept, they kept typing up his statement mm-hmm. and then they would show it to him and they'd be like no you that's not right that's you not gotta a, fix that that's you gotta exactly go. what he would, he would do, do it over and over <laughs> and it was just eating up time and the production just like the police just needed the producer to confirm that yes this is tim carrey yes and that no this was not an intentional pr stunt on the part of the movie to get publicity um, however, it was intentional on Carrie's part to get publicity, but it, but it ended up shooting himself in the foot because because of all of this back and forth with the statement, and mm-hmm. he was refusing to sign it. He was yeah. he was literally holding up production, and you've got fucking Kirk Douglas, a huge star, right. and I don't you know, normally I don't care, but this is like 1950s, toward the end of the golden age of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. This guy is a big deal. You don't keep him waiting, right, you right, know. Right, right. It, that's the point, and Tim Carrey was holding the whole production hostage. And Harris was like, I I can't do this. And he's like, if you don't sign this statement right now and leave, you're fired. Mm-hmm. And of course he didn't sign it, so he was fired. He sounds, I all I know about Tim Carey is what you tell me and the movies I've seen him in. And you can tell exactly who he is because he's not acting. He's just a guy who no matter what you tell him to do, he's going to do the he's, opposite. He's being so you, on screen. Yeah. yeah. And that's the other thing, though, is that, I mean, as much as I'm like, oh, he's magnetic, he's also a scene stealer, which that works at cross purposes with a director. Yeah. When they want people looking a certain place or a certain way, and you're just pulling all the focus right. all the time, he also would improvise, and it would throw everybody off. And you can see that he can't not. You can watch him and he's tell. That, he's that kind of an actor. Like, he should have been in, with, I mean, I think he 
maybe he was hanging out with Cassavetes later, but he, you know, he's more of that ilk, kind of like a weird natural artist. You know who he reminds like, me of? You know, De Niro in Mean Streets. So yeah. Like, you just won't do the one stupid thing. Frustrating. Yeah, very frustrating. Frustrating character. Yeah, he is incredibly frustrating. And it's hilarious to watch him try to march like a soldier. Well, though. he had like a the, duck walk. He in, was, and it was they worked on it, and that yeah. was the best they got. But there's a moment where. Kirk Douglas's character's doing a big, big summation and the two soldiers are like sitting upright in their chair. You're at fucking trial. Yeah. But like, like what's his name? Timothy Tim- Carey. He's just like leaning back. Yeah. Like, uh, eh, whatever. You know, like, is it, and it, <laughs> yeah. and it was just, it, it pissed off Douglas. Douglas hated him. He, he's, he thought. He's draped he, in the chair. Yeah, almost. exactly. Exactly. So it's just real bad. And he, what ended up happening, so now the issue was, of course, they fired him and, they hadn't shot the battle scene yet, and they also had a few scenes left that they needed him for. So there was a double brought in. And if you notice, there's a scene in the jail before they're executed where he's praying, but he has his back to the camera. That's a double. That's mm. not Tim Carey, you know, because yeah. he was fired at that point. You know, although it felt like, shit, we haven't shot the battle scene yet. It meant that they couldn't show the three people who would eventually go on trial um, on the battlefield because if you show two of them but not the other there's going to be a question Mm -hmm. of like well where's the other guy but they said blessing in disguise because if they had actually had to show them yeah they'd have to prove that they weren't cowards in some way and like it's it's better this way because it is a nameless we no one was there no one saw yeah kind of feeling to it but i i think it's a it's a good bounce you know to like we lost an actor we had to get rid of him and it's Again, I have maybe it was this guy. I mean, I've heard on Blank Check they talked about <laughs> Tim Carey in an episode, and uh, Griffin Newman was talking about having been at a screening where somebody who had worked with him very like casually said something about like, oh, you know, he's fine as long as you could, you know, get him out of a straitjacket. And you know, there's kind of this like titter of laughter and blah blah blah. And, and the, the interview kind of goes on, but then he he sort of stops and he's like, no, no, no let me be absolutely clear. <laughs> Timothy Carey was insane. Like, he just, like, cold, like, he's like, I'm not joking. This is not a joke. I want to be absolutely clear. I'm telling you, he's, he was Gary Busey. If you need I mean, someone to picture how... It, it really similar guy, yeah. yeah. Like, and you imagine him, when you see him in these movies, you think, like, that's just him, you know? Like, I mean, like in The Killing, you know? It's like, right. yeah, I bet this guy does shoot things for a living or lives out in this ramshackle I feel like he's the type of actor where he doesn't understand why he has to film the same take twice. He's like, I already did that. Why don't you just make it better? No, honestly. So you know the scene where they bring the food in? Right. So that's the one scene that took 57 takes. (laughs) And it was because Timothy Carey kept improvising and doing different things every time. And they said, we had to get a new duck. Like every time because the, they tear it apart right away. Yeah, yeah. Fifty-seven ducks. I mean, I think that's implied. Maybe, the, maybe they dub, got it down to half. I don't that. know. By the end, it seemed like it was just a pile full of. I know, but he pulls a thing, and I see. I but see. It's, it's one of the things that Harris stressed is that, like, okay, Kubrick became later known for like many takes, and I mean, there's the famous story about. Right, right. Um, Harvey Keitel walking off the set of Eyes Wide Shut, you know, mm. and, and things like that. Um, but it's important to stress that this is, again, early Kubrick film. So if he needed a second take, it was because like a prop failed or a light 
a shadow came. Right. It was very practical reasoning for why you would do another take. It wasn't about, you know, he had to get it right. Um, so the Tim, it's Timothy Carey's 57 takes, not yeah. Kubrick's. Right, right, You know, right. like, and I just want to make that clear. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm done with Tim Carey news. There's, I, I had a piece. I was just going to mm. say in that duck scene, he does whatever. The only take that works is him being like, you think it's poisoned? I think they poisoned it. I yeah. think they why drugged would they, it. Why would they poison us before they the, kill us? Yeah, yeah. He he maybe ends up with something that's pretty good by yeah. going there. But, like, you can totally tell he's winging it. The whole, what, a, what a piece of work. What a piece of work. What a piece of from work. From Brooklyn. Uh, do you have reviews to share? I do have reviews. All right, I'm going to give you the light. The Kensington News and West London Times. Kensington. There we go. I know that Kensington name. News and West London Times. That's from Austin Powers. I know. Mrs. Kensington. Kensington. Mrs. Kensington. And News and West and London. West London <laughs> okay. Times. Yeah. Uh, I think the the headline says it all. Terrifying, brutal, brilliant. There yeah, you go. There you go. There you go. Um, directed by 29-year-old Stanley Kubrick, who made his name at The Killing. Yada, yada. The shots of the regiment's advance towards the enemy lines are the most realistic I have ever seen, and the court martial scenes are some of the most compelling. I thought that was just mm-hmm. good. And good well, call-outs. It was true. Yep. But I always, I always love in these reviews where they kind of go, they just go a little hyperbolic, right? Because they, mm-hmm. it's good writing, you know. It's like it's it, it'll <laughs> zap your brain. Yeah. <laughs> This next one, hey, shout out to Austin, the Austin American. I'm assuming that's before. Yes, before they became the Austin American Statesman. It merged with the Statesman. Mm-hmm. Look at this. Hometown. 1957? Uh, 1958. Eight. Actually, okay. yeah. Um, Oscars will not come its way next week, but Path of Glory is an outstanding film. And it, uh, yeah, I think this is the one that uh, actually did. I think this is the best review I saw because it's like. Mm-hmm. Of the several provocative questions raised by Pass of Glory, perhaps the most inexplicable one to a viewer is why is not why it isn't being considered for at least half a dozen of the Academy Awards. Yeah, yeah, it didn't. It was pretty well ignored. Yeah, but he, this guy was on it. Um, yeah, John I, Buston. He's Buston. Buston makes me feel good. It has. Sorry, I am. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm being serious. I here. know. I know. It has brilliant direction, equally inspired and intense acting, a crackling style of writing. Crackling. Crackling. That comes back. A brand of photography whose starkness is that of the newsreel camera. Well, that's what he came from. That's why I brought it up, because I knew you would would be able to say that documentary has always kind of been where It looks like real footage, almost, Mm -hmm. but better. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on. Uh, especially the war, like the war advance. Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah. here we are with Kirk marching upon the anthill. You mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. But, of course, much different. <laughs> the point of the story is obvious, and director Stanley Kubrick hammers it home with sickening force. Well, I don't know, I just liked... it. Does He does good also to mention the kind of like the hypocrisy of the chain of command and that even in the end when... Yeah. This higher up does the right thing and like trash cans the general or whatever. It's still too late though. It's too late, but he also assumes that Kirk's character did it f- 
just to steal his job. He's yeah. like, oh, good old boy. You You're got ambitious. Good. Good. Yeah. He like he did not even so see. Fucked. He so could not fucked. even believe that. There Couldn't was, understand like, that he had like a real moral. Altruistic yeah. motive for sure. Can't believe it. Well, here we go. Here's another uh, review. Star Tribune, Minneapolis. Uh 1958, February, uh, Will Jones. Cynical Paths is top film. Cynical Paths. That's a top, that's a. Is top film. Not. <laughs> easy to say. Headlines, not great. No. <laughs> is top film. Like, yeah, it's not even like you What's were. What's the author's name again? Will Jones. Jones not work here anymore. <laughs> Jones not is top. Uh, Pass of Glory is the ugliest, most cynical war film I have ever seen. It is also the best. Oh, I forgot. Uh. That's a really good one. Yeah, he did it. Pass of Glory snaps the viewer to attention in instantly and crackles excitement every moment crackles. of its way to the end. Crackles. Crackling. I just think the of... The crackling. Isn't like crackling lung a thing? Crackling it Im- implies riveting... Uh, electric energy like a like a fire crackles yeah fire can crackle i'm just gonna say from like hearthstone Mm -hmm. terminology crackling means covered in lightning bolts Mm -hmm. like if you have the ability that's crackling yeah electricity like light bulbs used to crackle in people's eyes i guess because they were the grackles crackles and crackles crackling crackle would be electrified crow like if you're fighting in Final Fantasy. Oh no, it's a grackle crackle. And you use water type on it. Yeah. It well, was relevant. I, I love the crackling. Crackling. It caught me. The crackling is happening in this film. I feel like that's maybe not even the most apt way to describe it, but that is like The, the dialogue is real uh caustic at times though. That's true. Although that's even that feels mean spirited. It's like it's very sober. Yeah, sobering, I would put it. Yeah. Like and sobering, I think, like that that very clear-eyed, mm-hmm. no, there's no dispute to be had here because it's, this is a matter of, of, of um, being a human being and not killing a, your fellow man. It has a Mr. Smith going to Washington kind of feel. It does, except like actually realistic in terms of like the aftermath. Yeah, yeah, you know? you're right. But also... Like, nobody's coming to sure. save them. Like, there, there's... That's what I... And I know we're in reviews, but just thinking about, like, the dread. And there's a certain realism... Because you, you know that Dax right. meets with that guy to pass off the information that's going to bring down this awful general. Mm-hmm. And so you think, oh, well, maybe there's a chance, right? right? Maybe someone will call. And then it's like, it just becomes clearer and clearer as they're being marched and tied up that, like... No one's coming. No, there's no, no call one, from nobody's, the governor. Nobody's right? coming to save them, and we're going to have to just watch them die. I don't think the movie works unless you do that. I I kind of agree, and I think we could talk about the, that scene later, even yeah. entirely. But yeah, I also Ugh. yeah, Ugh. that scene is it's rough. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the like upsetting, and I mean that in a. In the marrow of your bones, not like mm-hmm. shocking, upsetting, not like it's such. A, well, like I said, once you're like the court kind of starts, the last half of the movie is kind of just this like slow march toward this. Yeah, inevitable. you just feel it. Yeah, 
kind of like the prisoner's atmosphere. Like it's yeah. growing, it's yes. growing, time counting down. No, absolutely. I think you're right. It's very so empathetic Johnny, to yeah. the, the prisoner's point of view. There's a Johnny Cash song all about it. Yeah. A lot of things about it. Um, the Ballad of Redding Gold. This, this yeah. film, back to the review. Yes, please. <laughs> I hadn't thought, but of course it only no, no, drag no. us further. Okay. I don't know. I the know. film moves on in a to its bitter ending as raw as the war itself. There's a rather short picture uh, for these days, 86 minutes, full of brief but rich roles in which any actor worth his pay can act up a storm, a crackle storm of acting. Act up a storm. Good to know that phrase was yeah. in circulation, though. Yeah, yeah. I like I like that. I like the idea that, like, it's a certainly good vehicle for any actor worth his salt. Yeah. If you can't get notice in this movie, you ain't acting, huh? you know. <laughs> you know what though? It's it's funny because like getting Douglas was a big deal. Yeah. But it meant that once they had the big star, Kubrick could cast the best people for the role. Right. And he was always really good at that. I like I said I. He's masterful, just in every way. I'm always impressed with the takes he gets out of his actors, which so good with I don't even know if that's fair to the actors or not, but. Um, I mean, he he's able to reason with them. He's able to, yeah. yeah. Carrie's unique face will be familiar to those who saw the first Harris Kubrick picture, you know, The Killing. Mm-hmm. He's he's the same actor who played the weird sharpshooter in <laughs> The Killing. <laughs> yep. I just love that. That's <laughs> There was, I didn't pull it, and I'm sorry, Jim, but there was a great article about him that, like, the headline was written like out of order because it was trying to imply that Timothy Carey has a way all his own, but it was like Timothy Carey, his own all his way or something like that. And the whole thing was just sort of a playful exploration of wow. what was probably a really difficult person to work with. Really difficult interview even to write. I don't think they even tried. Oh, good. <laughs> they were like, Hollywoodites will know the name. Anyway. Yeah. I'm just going to say, Will Jones ends this review with, whether children should see it is a matter of discretion. Mm. I say make them watch it. <laughs> I kinda, it's not like gory or anything. No, it's not gory at all. In fact, like even the war scenes have this cartoonish machine gun noise yeah. that I've heard in libraries. And it's a lot of dirt I've, piles and people scrambling over, bombed yeah. out, whatever. I mean, it's not... This is not... Um, Every good war movie should be an anti-war movie. Yeah, yeah. Honestly. And I, I don't I don't have any... I'm sure there are examples... I mean, you know, me and Chelsea watched Patton. That was one of the first things yeah. we, we dove into. But, like, that wasn't merely a war film. It's like, no, that was like a biographical portrait. Right. You know, anyway. But, yeah, if you're in the business of making films and you, and you make a war film that isn't taking a hard, critical look at mm-hmm. its futility, you're part of the problem. Right. And I know some diehards who even say, like, uh, Spielberg, uh, Saving Private Ryan. Even some people find that to be, like, just a little too blockbustery and it not is. quite, like, even though it's, like, all vicious. That's part of why. It's not why, quite honest enough. If I'm not mistaken, that is part of why Band of Brothers also was made, like, that series. Right, right. Because You're I think it was. Kind of the same idea. It was yeah. an interest in. Maybe, maybe it's very palatable and needs to be a little more. People loved it. I think. So anyway, that's some reviews. I think uh, Thank you. people thought it crackled. People were kind of shaken loose from their stupor a little bit by this movie. Kubrick cracklins. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you got to Photoshop that. That rem- oh, That's what I was going to say. I wanted you to Photoshop something. Oh, it's the 
the image, the Norman Rockwell painting of that man standing up in the pew and it's like, I have something yeah. to say uh-huh. like that. But with uh, Kirk Douglas and it's <laughs> like, we should not take the anthill or these so you know, like these yeah. soldiers were not cowards. Yeah. We Just for, for the, for the movie. I think for you, the could, you could do that. Okay. I'll do it. All right. Well, in our director's show this week, this is a big deal. Uh, as was, We've covered big deals before. You know, we talked about Coppola. We talked about Martin Scorsese. We're not going to cover everything. All right. So yeah. we're just not. No. And this is a good example. Unless you uh, go on the Patreon and click the <laughs> deep dive on Kubrick button. Yeah, which is just me ranting in a live stream for 10 hours. Victoria's um, secretly hoping that you do do that so that she has to. Anyway, um, we have Stanley Cooper in our director's chair and... You've heard us gushing. You know we're fans, but I mean, really, this is... It's cubes. It's cubes. What you gonna do? Build that wall out of Kubrick's. Okay, (laughs) enough. He was born July 26, 1928 in Bronx, New York. He passed away March 7th, 1999. Uh, 99. That was a really good year for movies. Party like it's But we lost Kubrick that year, so... Uh, Stanley Kubrick is I just want to mention at the top he said the best education in film is to make one his parents Gert and Jack now Gert is short for uh, Gertrude I, I full, assume full name Sadie Gertrude Preveller and his father Jacob Leonard Kubrick he also had a sister Barbara Mary who was born in 1934 a couple years uh, six years after him so a little bit of a gap there um, Sadie Gertrude sounds like a woman you marry definitely and uh, Jack did Jack is of Polish, Jewish, and Romanian Jewish descent, and he became a homeopathic doctor. So uh, now the the homeopathic thing, I don't mm. don't ask me any follow ups. I don't know. Yeah. All I know though is that his father, being a kind of physician, meant that their family was pretty well off as far by in comparison to many of right. the other people in their community. Um, Gertrude was of her grandparents were Austrian Jewish immigrants. So um, there was a story that uh, Hirsch Kubrick, who was a Stanley's great great grand or his great grandfather, excuse me, he left behind. This was in ni- 1899. He left behind a wife and two children to go start like a new life with a younger woman. Hmm. Uh, and one of the kids left behind would be Stanley's grandfather, Elias. Hmm. Only three years later, Elias. Oh, and I should mention, uh, Hirsch came from Liverpool and he came through Ellis Island. But um, Elias would come over just three years later in 1902. I don't know how old he was. Um, could have been quite young. Um, I know my in my family, like wh- whoever came over was like, you know, a wee. like 12 put on a boat by yeah. themselves. Like, good luck. <laughs> you know, like Christ. So Kubrick was not raised with religion. He pretty much identified as, uh, you know, an atheist. However, you know, his parents were married in a Jewish ceremony. So it's kind of like, you know, Christians who celebrate Christmas and don't do mm. anything else. I'd say that's the approximation I would make. Um he attended public schools in the Bronx, PS3, and later PS90. Oh, he PlayStation w- 3? Yes, <laughs> oh. public school. Um, it was discovered that he had a higher than average IQ, but his attendance was very poor. I don't oh. know when truancy as a law and truant officers. I think that was under true men. Uh, well, I don't know when that started exactly. Are you, You're joking, right? Yes. Like, okay, I'm just making yes. sure. <laughs> Yes. I was waiting for you to like, no, really. No, um, truancy is true when you mancy. do go to school. Truancy <laughs> is when you don't. You don't. Uh, true. 
Well, I guess they weren't uh, on that at the, in those times, so he didn't, you know, he didn't show up a lot. Um, he, but he did like to read, and he mm. grew up his family's li- personal library at home. And, you know, it was very excellent, and he read a lot of fables, myths, Brothers Grimm, mm. and kind of developed a strong affinity for European stories. I think because of that, or it's it's been said. I'm not the only one thinking it. Uh, he spent most Saturdays watching the New York Yankees. He liked baseball. He was like a normal kid, you know. Um, I see. Reading is good. I think it's the first gateway a kid has to other places he can explore kind of freely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, Reading's reading... a good sign for like a bright a bright young one. And then, uh, yeah, but yeah. then it all gets beaten out of you because eventually well, we all hate reading. Right? I mean, that's the thing he kind of came back around. You know, I think he I think this is somebody who was intelligent enough to be curious and to follow mm-hmm. that curiosity. Um, but it meant that being in school, he wasn't he didn't. He didn't do well there. Mm-hmm. Um, he was generally kind of a poor student. In high school, he's, he joins the pho- photography club just so that he can really just photograph all the school events, mm-hmm. which honestly, you know, like that is kind of cool. If you have to go to a fucking school assembly, but at least you're the one who gets to walk around and like yeah. do whatever you kind of want because you're the photographer, like yeah. way better situation. My general opinion of like education in America is it would be better if if you could somehow pinpoint what a kid really was interested in and just and like was push him to it and yeah. kind of hold his feet to the fire a little bit on it. That yeah. would be ideal. Ideal. Yeah. Well, ideal is impossible, but I hear what you're saying. I think that's I the correct motivation well, every so, youngster needs. Yeah. I mean, this Kubrick again was not, he didn't enjoy high school at all. He went to William Howard Taft from 1941 to 1945. <laughs> um, but again, he's like a D average student. He skips a lot to go see double features. Really. He's Draper. He's Don He's Draper. He's Don Draper. Uh, his father, though, although he was very disappointed because he knew his son was smart, he knew he could do better, he just was choosing not to. But I think his father still was very, very encouraging. Um, mm. For one thing, he taught him chess when he was 12. And Kubrick, this is a lifelong interest. I mean, he, Kubrick was a member of the U.S. Chess Federation eventually. Wow. Um, and he, at one for one time, or another, you know, either in school or or just when he was cutting school, or, um, he used to go to Washington Square Park and different chess clubs, and he would play for quarters. <laughs> so I mean, he kind of did this like low level gambling on, yeah. on his skill and ability, and it just was a thing that he and you'll you'll find chess themes in a lot of his films. And as you already have pointed out, yeah, there was a pretty obvious chess board in yeah, Castle and they're all glory. pawns. I mean, it all makes yeah, they're yeah, they're placed in, like even yeah. spread. I mean, it's exactly yeah. that. It's incredible. Um, you know, it just, and it's, a, it's not, it's not like the most crazy, uh, image to draw. It's not as if no one's mm-hmm. ever touched that, but it's like, it's just simple and it's purity. He doesn't belabor it. No. Like I said, you didn't even catch it. I mean, you didn't even catch it. I didn't. Subtle. Um, his father also got him his first camera, a Graflex when he was about 13. Uh, again, the interest in photography grew. He also happened to have a neighbor who's also into photography and had mm. a dark room. So he spent a lot of time over there developing stuff, kind of like becoming really fascinated by the process, mm-hmm. gaining skills with composition. Um, now, because he didn't do well in school, and again, he finished in 1945, and the GI Bill was in full effect, the chances of him getting into college were pretty much none. Mm. So he didn't even try. I mean, he took some night classes, I think, at like the the city college. What he did do, though, um, 
you know, was get a job. <laughs> and he started getting, uh, he sold like a photo series to Look Magazine, mm. um, which is early photojournalism magazine, similar to Life, you know. Wow. Um, and he started making kind of like a small living doing this uh, and started getting better assignments, started traveling wow. around. And, you know, it, again, it's, I, I, I'm going to read a quote about how he felt about school or schooling in general. And I want to, you know, stress that, that it, it's his experience that he's he's basing this on. But that doesn't mean it's it's an experience that um, he's the only one who would have. I think it's important to have a well-rounded education and all that. But um, anyway, here's what he had to say. I think the big mistake in schools is trying to teach children anything. Using fear as the basic motivation. Fear of getting failing grades. Fear of not staying with your class, etc. Interest can produce learning on a scale comparable to fear as a nuclear explosion to a firecracker. And I think... You know, I think somebody who's, you know, libertarian mm-hmm. or conservative could like, you know, try to use this as like, this is why we don't need public education, you know, just have people mm-hmm. go their own way. I, I do think it's important for people to right. to be able to do some basic arithmetic, to even like understand like some basic chemical processes. And sure. have, even if you don't go in, I do like a well-rounded education, but I also think that it's foolish to not set somebody up for success if they're displaying a certain aptitude right like i think like that's just a waste just sure, a total sure. waste of talent you know i i don't like the idea of enriched or gifted programs or i don't like <laughs> that strata no i know some people came out of them i know you did a lot of that sort of thing but i think <laughs> well like ap yes, but i actually think like forget the levels let's have like the flavors right you know like this is for people who are probably going to be artists you know or people who are going to go into humanities or this like, is for people going into government or the, or not even going i mean that's the thing they try right. to sell you on this idea that oh but you get stuck in this track and then you can't get out of this track i'm like right. you live in fucking america you can change yourself every 10 years if you want like right. every five years like hell in, in los angeles every year you can reinvent yourself <laughs> you, every day people you kind, reinvent you kind of have to you kind of do because once they get tired of last year's that's year. not true every country you know i mean that is like one one of the things about America, right, is like you can just kind of pick the right. job you want and then go be it. Like sure. there aren't like there are gates and there are gatekeeping to things. But for the most part, that's the dream. Right. Or that's the thing. Anyway, um, he also said that he just felt like schools are ineffective in stimulating critical thinking and student interest. And I think, you know, I did well in school. I liked it. But I, I know what he's talking about. Right. I absolutely know what he's talking about. And I definitely felt very impatient, right. both in my latter years of high school and in my whole time in college, because it was just like, I'm just delaying my life. I'm just delaying my right. life. Let me out of here. I know what to do, you know? I don't even really want to get into the subject, but yeah, it, it's this is all, we're borderlining on like some Ayn Rand stuff, which, you know, I, I know. don't agree with, but I do empathize with or I, kind of understand as th- like, there's yeah. again i don't there it's not like hard in one way or hard in the other way it's just that some people have certain abilities that and talents that schools cannot measure and if the fact that we measure everything in schools quantitatively like gpa yeah. test scores leads to a, a larger cultural perception that people's value has to be measured in invisible right measurable ways which is fucking disgusting because well, like kind of, yeah we're not we're people we're not right. we shouldn't be assessed that like that no. you know i mean i do have thoughts on that but it's kind of like what you said earlier today which is that 
Well, if you're one of the C students, you'll probably end up on a film set. That's just where they belong. Possibly. Um, I just want to mention the title of a few of the photographic things that he did, like the, mm. the pieces. Um, short story from a movie balcony was he actually staged like a fight between a man and a woman in a movie theater. Like as if, I don't know if it was like he tried to touch her and she slaps him. I don't know. But it was some kind of a like you know, again, for Look Magazine. So it's oh. kind of, imagine like life, you know, they would do these yeah, four images yeah. or something, just trying to show you a bit of, it's photojournalism. We're showing right, you right. a shot of life. He also did one that was 18 photos of people waiting in a dental office. Hmm. So similar to what you were saying about the, the the shots of the soldiers, like giving all those symbols. Oh, right. Similarly, he took these photos of... There's pe- also a sense of humor there. That there is. But he's interested in people in like mundane yeah. sort of situations and environments. He also covered the Ringling Brothers Circus. He did some travel pieces. He covered boxing matches. He did a series called Chicago City of Extremes. And some of the images, um, they're worth looking at, you know, and they're just very evocative of the sort of environment of a city. Like he was, he was very good at communicating through pictures, um, which you need to be if you're going to be a filmmaker. Um, then uh, he does eventually get married. Now, he gets married three times. Um, I don't have a lot of details on it. All that I'm going to say is the girl who sang in this film uh, at the end, he married her. Mm. But she was his third wife at that point. Oh, wow. So um, he marries his first wife. uh, And I I don't, again, I hate to be that way. Like, oh, it's his first wife. She was a woman of complete and whole nature, I'm sure. I just didn't have the time. I'm sorry. I didn't. We're talking about Kubrick. Um, (laughs) Anyway, he gets married moves to Greenwich Village, and he starts going to movies at MoMA and just theaters, and he just starts getting obsessed. Uh, he's very influenced by Max Ophus, uh, Ilya Kazan, Sergei Eisenstein, but also Arthur Rothstein, who was the technical director at Look, and who's considered one of the America's like premier photojournalists. You know, People who know this stuff know that name. I didn't know that name. Um, from there, he moves into documentaries. He figures, like, well, if I can sell these photo series... Surely I could, like, produce a short doc film or something mm-hmm. and then sell that. Mm-hmm. Uh, which he did, but it was kind of like he ended up selling it for, like, more than any doc piece had ever been, like, paid or, or given. Or Basically, he, he put so much effort into it and, and spent so much money on it that he needed God. to get the money, you know, and it, it ended up being kind of expensive. That's He was learning oh. his lessons. Like, I see, I see. Like, I see. there were other issues where... He would like elect to do something with sound, and then like end up blowing a bunch of money on sound processing that he that ended up being worthless. You know, okay. I mean, he's he's making his mistakes. Okay. He's learning. At first, I thought you were just saying he was flossing that hard. That no, it was just like I decided to make a documentary. Turns out it's the greatest. Well, I'm sure documentary some people would. <laughs> I'm sure some people would frame it like, and then he achieved this and that. And no, I think it was kind of like okay. he was always by the skin of his teeth. He always gotcha. barely just made back the money. Um, some other things that he did were uh, like one short film was called Day of the Fight that was the expensive one Mm. Um, he also did another one called Flying Padre which was literally about a priest who traveled all over to visit all these different churches over like thousands of miles Uh, and another one called The Seafarers Um, and then he starts moving into features and so now it's like we have Fear and Desire which he himself is, was tried to like destroy copies of, like because he didn't mm. want people to see it. If he, he felt kind of embarrassed, um, it's one I actually haven't seen yet. But um, apparently, there's a scene where a woman is tied to a tree at one point um, by one of these soldiers, and 
there's it was described as being you know um just strange and beautiful and terrifying and it just mm. like i it makes me think oh there's a little glimpse maybe there thinking of like clockwork orange or something i'm kind of picturing kubrick as the the guy who films bags and american beauty <laughs> yeah and that his little bit his weirdness is that he's just willing to what no don't cut yet yeah well he was definitely people didn't think he would be a film director particularly in hollywood because he was very quiet and yeah just sort of and thin and poor you know and, <laughs> um uh then after fear and desire which was a sort of wartime picture which by the way he almost killed his cast with like poison gas on accident <laughs> i couldn't find more details what is this uh fear and desire oh, okay, it's, okay it's about these soldiers who fall behind enemy lines and they're well, having to find their way back this is sally's um mm. warning moment it's pretty easy to make mustard gas Oh, yeah, people know that. Most incredible cleaning supplies involve Mixed together, yeah. ammonia and bleach. or bleach. Yeah, don't mix them. And that's why you don't mix cleaning chemicals. Very nice. PSA, thank you. The more you know. Um, he followed Fear and Desire with Killer's Kiss, which is a noir boxing movie. So kind of, you know, he did that, that documentary about the day of the fight, you know, about boxing. And he had done a lot of photos of boxing matches. So I think this was a world he knew how to photograph, he was comfortable in. And the movie is remarkable for its photography. Like some of the shots are really, Mm -hmm. really interesting. He's also, um, you know, shooting in Times Square in New York. So just seeing Times Square like at night in that time is just a gift, you know. Um, All I'm hearing is get your baby, glue a camera into its hands. Yeah. And then you could have Forever, a, yeah. a crazy son. Kind of, yeah. Um, and uh, But I will say about Killer's Kiss, I have seen this one, and many people agree that the plot is just kind of okay. And it's like, yeah, it's eh. You yeah. Know. Uh, and then this followed up by The Killing, which we started talking about a little bit. Uh, and then that's followed by Paths of Glory. And that's where I'm going to end it because... Kubrick is long. <laughs> yeah. So we're just bringing you up to speed of Paths yeah. of Glory. But I think it's interesting. This is a guy who definitely was a, a photographer uh, first and then a documentarian, then a filmmaker. And that the, all those things are still filmmaking. It's just that um, the, the evolution is really like, God, I would love to have that. Yeah, yeah. I would love to. I would love to enter my cocoon now, please, and become a butterfly. Well, that's what happened. I mean, after he made Spartacus, he got so like fed up with Hollywood that then he moved to England and he spent the rest of his life pretty much making films over there. Wow. Damn, that's cool, man. Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) It's pretty cool. I cool cat. Yeah, I uh, I do like hearing about his skinny years because that's that's, what these are. I'm I'm not saying skinny and. Oh, I mean, yeah. like, like literally, because he would the skinny years. I get what you're the saying. The years where you're not that successful, yes. and, and you're not Kubrick. You're not this god. Yes, of film. people don't know you yet. And like, and even that, he did learn these things, even if he was like, mm-hmm. you know, a, a phenom at it or whatever. But the he word worked. I'm for. You know, I mean, as much as I want to sit here and say, "Oh, yeah. this guy's a prodigy," it's like, it's it's education, it's interest, it's pursuit, and it wasn't all. Great. He wasn't always wasn't this always... unattainable ideal of a thing yeah, to be. He was, a, he was a person. He made mistakes. Who just yeah. kept trying. But or... I think also just looking, and then I'm going to my shallow version of that, which is just seeing like behind the scenes photos, you know, on set stills. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, I think the image of him is, you know, the wild hair and the beard. And it's like when you see him kind of clean shaven and it's like he, is, he just kind of looks like 
Yeah, like kind of like just like a nerdy guy. Yeah. Sweet, maybe a sweet kind of guy. I don't know. But yeah. there's something kind of appealing about he's got these kind of dark, really dark eyes. And he's not like a classically handsome man. But I would I think I would find him. I think I would have a hard time like not looking at him. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like there's something about his his face and um, uh, and he just looks so at home. You know, like in some of these photos, and it's just there's there's a confidence just radiating already. I guess mm. is probably what I'm responding to. Yeah. Um, Wood. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> who's your best supporting player? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, Tim Carey. Tim Carey yeah. <laughs> for being such a fucking nightmare. Yeah. But you know, he steals everything. I I don't. That's mine. I don't, yeah, I didn't I mean think to answer he, for you. I think he is the best supporting player, even though he apparently did Pissed not everybody su- off. did not support the movie. He was that not well. very supporting. He no. was like the best adversarial player. I think he does it I I get why everyone butted heads with him and hated it. But yes. like he does kinda oh. he is the perfect person to play that character, which is like the guy who was chosen to be the fall guy just because he kind of annoying everybody. Yeah. Well, and I or think... Or he was a digit, you know, because he well, wasn't right. And in the firing know. squad scene... In the head. He... His, his, his agony is... It's incredibly hard to watch. Like, and I mean that yeah. as a compliment. Like, it, yeah. it's... it's um. And the fact that he's the one who actually is the most broken up about yeah, it. Yeah, after being such a big, like... Right. Yeah. But that oh that was the spoiler alert on this whole scene. <laughs> it's but the end of the show, it's okay. <laughs> I think the 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 fact that the one of the prisoners hit his head in that scuffle. Oh yeah, that was so. I, I want to say necessary because they had to go through all that silliness of tying him to the post, and he's already half dead, but yeah. you got to kill him. Because it's like pride. Yeah, it's like shooting a dog. Oh, like, and what like is the point the of The whole, it? like, pinch him so that he's awake. Pinch his cheeks, yeah, to make sure he's awake. I mean, that, just that part alone, I mean, yeah. it's all bad, but that extra little, like, just, I'm imagining opening my eyes and yeah. seeing that. Yeah. Fr- and, like, maybe your brain isn't even in any kind of way He's awake, to but not even responsive. Yeah. yeah. What's the point? And that's when I wrote down, cruelty is the point. Cruelty is the point, exactly. And this, oh, my God. And, yeah, all the reviews are right. The The stark, like, sobering, and that's why I think Kirk Douglas is such a good vehicle because he is the, like, what is right? What mm-hmm. is wrong? How can we call ourselves men if we can't whatever? He's such a good, like... Well, and, and Kirk's known for, like, having these incredibly explosive... He, he's capable of being that big... Yeah. You know, I don't... Shouty actor energy. He yeah. Can, he can do that. He's got that in spades. <clears throat> Kubrick manages to, like, have that be so restrained until that private scene, mm-hmm. you know, at the end, which... I think I read some reviewer critic kind of like saying, not that he's wrong, but it's like, but could could Colonel Dax really expect anything else? Is he not a bit foolish for thinking that he is kind of like protagonist level naive of some yeah, degree, like but... he's going through a journey here? Yeah, because it, it, it kind of feels like not like why are you there? I mean, everybody got fucking conscripted. I mean, it's not a matter of choice, but. Um, he he stays very cool and rational 
you know, it's not until like they're in the attack that he just realizes like this, this is actually nothing. I'm watching people die. It's it's no longer like a, we'll do our best. It's like no, we are failing. We we like, failed. He again talking about the beginning with like each the shit rolling downhill, each like lower in command being convinced that this attack can and must happen in two days. Yeah, he. You could see him saying, like, don't the men deserve a break? They just fought bravely and blah, blah, blah. We yeah. just lost. We're torn to shreds. Yeah. But, like, he's his pride, even though he's, like, kind of earnest, but they appeal to him in this it's, way. Like, yeah. you it's can almost, rally the it's boys, It's almost like though. the pride of the, of the force. Right. That it's, like, it's not just, he felt like, oh, I almost felt like they weren't insulting him. They were insulting his men. Yeah. And, and that he, was what got him. That they, was what ignited his pride. Right. The protectiveness, right? That exactly. like, no, 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 they're not. Don't. This isn't their yeah. like. And the poor fool fell for it. Yeah. You know? Like, and and had to suffer, which is, I think, like, right. That's why he he wants to represent them. He feels it's not yeah. just that he empathizes. He feels a certain amount of responsibility. For sure. Two things that I which guess nobody so, else feels. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. No. You know? He he definitely is the <laughs> well. This is what I noticed. There's a great shot on its door with the glass mm-hmm. printing it says colonel dax yeah but it's col period dax yeah d-a-x mm-hmm. i couldn't help but it's like oh cold axe he is like this oh, driving wow. cold axe He's wow in, i think i it can't be it's, a i mean accident yeah even if it's if it is it doesn't matter right it's like it it because there's sometimes when you do things as a writer or creatively that you don't even realize you've done yeah like they ha- they just sort of happen organically and the song yeah. points it out and you're like oh yeah i guess i did do that <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know yeah i meant to I meant to do that any other thoughts to close this one out colonel kirk he gets this great sink face reveal he has a classic genre Washing his face in the sink, mm. and then you see him kind of, I think, maybe even like in the mirror or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but definitely in chiaroscuro or whatever. Yeah, they gave him some good lighting. Yeah. Like they lit him like a like an actress. Felt like Apocalypse Now a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, well, precursor. But uh, yeah, I just think that was good. And yeah, there's some. When he's being cajoled into doing the attack, he uses the phrase, well, it's certainly pregnable, you know? Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's just a funny thing. To yeah. Say. yeah. I also noticed Private Farrell. Yeah. You know, Farrell. Yeah. Tim Carey. It's pretty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. It's a slight nod to like, yeah, why. Although, was... you know, I. Yeah. It makes me wonder. I'm sure some of that came from the book too. You know, the, some of that symbolism. Yeah. Like cold be. axe, curled yeah. axe. Like yeah. that feels very literary. You know, that's true. Like, I remember learning about like um, in Jane Eyre, there's a character near the beginning when Jane's still a child uh, and she goes to school at this like orphanage. And there's another girl there and her name is Helen Burns. She ends up dying of fever. (laughs) And it's not just Helen Burns like fear, but also like she wasn't there, there was some sort of question, I think, about her legitimacy or something. So it was like, no, she's like burning in hell. Oh. Helen Burns. Oh, no. It's dark, man. Oh. Well, I got uh, maybe one last thing to say. <laughs> okay. Yeah, lay it on us. Dax all, folks. Da, 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 da. Colonel Kirk. <laughs> I kept thinking of James <laughs> Kirk this whole movie. James Kirk. Uh, you can follow us on social media. Still on Twitter somehow. Mm-hmm. Still doing it. 
I am on threads now. You are. Okay. But it's and tied it to my Instagram. Beard on tap? Yes. Okay, so you can follow Which us. is the same as my Twitter. Yeah. You can follow Sally on any of those platforms at Beard on Tap, Twitter, Threads, Instagram. You can email the show at a breath of fresh movie at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Fresh Movie Pod. Forgot that part. Uh yeah. Technically we do have a Patreon, but I haven't f- figured out like tiers yet. I just mentioned it so that yeah. somebody bugs you to do a Kubrick deep dive. I need what I need to do is I want to start like offering like if you give us this money I will write you a letter, mm-hmm. send you a sticker. She'll you know. do it too. I will. She's I got you a don't good know. Pal. You don't know how many fucking stamps, stickers, mm-hmm. and stationery and all kinds of bullshit I'm ready to right. just send out. Nope. All right. Bye.